It's like after each session, we were a little bit rushed to get on to the next thing and haven't had um, as much time for small group. But I think tonight, um, there's a bit more time carved off for, for the uh, evening worship here. And so as I think as uh, Dave mentioned, we're going to have a little bit more of an extended time of prayer together in our small groups, which I think is going to be really great uh, tonight. As I said at the first message last night, um, the first two messages are going to sort of unpack this theme of brokenness, but we are going to make a bit of a pivot now in the second half of the retreat into um, focusing on what it means to really um, uh, prioritize community in our life, and uh, especially in light of the brokenness of our world, what that really um, represents for our faith and our uh, discipleship. And so today's message is uh, simply titled Choosing Community. Um, I looked at the Slido like this afternoon and there was only like one or two new questions and then I just checked at like six and then bam, like there's like um, a bunch more questions. And so I try to frantically, um, you know, copy and paste them onto um, my notes here so I could dr- address them together. But I, it, it really helps me to see the kind of questions you guys are asking but because it uh, actually makes me feel like you guys are listening and engaging with the talks, and so I think it's wonderful. Um, we'll try to run through them all if we can here, although um, we'll have to probably carve out a little space for this. Uh, how do you encourage those who are introverted? Uh, and I want to say, uh, there's just so, I could, each one of these responses could be a little sermonette, and I don't want to do that. And so um, I'm going to actually make reference to some books throughout so a lot of my replies so that if you, whoever wrote the question, or even if it stimulates some um, thoughts in you that you could go to those references and read a lot more about them if you're really motivated to do so. I, I wanted to start off by saying that I think um, introversion and extroversion, one of the funny things I find is that especially, and I'm, I, I really mean this, especially in American culture, it's, it's very much an extroverted culture, I think. And I didn't really even realize this until I lived in Africa for five years and rubbed shoulders with a lot of Europeans who are not nearly as extroverted as Americans even. And um, so it's just this very interesting bias toward extroversion that we see particularly in American culture, so much so that I think what has resulted is that extroversion is considered normal and introversion is a problem, right? And I have a lot of problems with that. I I think that that's uh, a very unfortunate bias. I think introversion, extroversion are just merely temperaments. And it's the immaturity that can actually result in a lot of the challenges that arise from either introversion or extroversion. I think introversion often accompanies people who are just a lot more sensitive and pay attention and and are just aware of things that often extroverts will easily overlook. And there's just I could go on and on and list the type of qualities that become very important assets in the church. If you want to actually pursue this further, though, there's this really excellent book called Quiet by Susan Cain. It's not a Christian book, but I think she has a lot of wonderful things to say about introversion that comes out of her own research into the introverted temperament. Another book that you could look at is Introverts in the Church by Adam McHugh and Scott McKnight. Again, this particular application of introversion and what the expression of that ought to look like in a, in a faith setting. Um, do our children or we need to be broken before we will return to God? Um, I'm not sure if I fully understand what this question is asking, but if by brokenness we are defining it actually as the acknowledgement of our need for God when we come to truly be aware of the depths of our sin 
and the distortions that exist in our life, then yes, I, I think that is actually a very necessary ingredient for us to um, return to God. Uh, the third question is, do you think there is such thing as generational curses, like the uh, Kennedy family curse? I, I, I don't know. If you guys are aware, like the Kennedy curse is just a lot of these bizarre deaths that have occurred in the family tree of the Kennedys, whether it's assassinations or premature you know, deaths of even infants and things like that. Um, to be honest, I don't know if I really see warrant for that type of intergenerational curse in Scripture. Um, maybe you could make a case for something like that in the Old Testament, but I would say definitely when we think about the cross of Christ, that's a dimension of the cross that we don't often talk about. Um, it's this real sense in which a curse has been broken by the cross to enable us to really live in the power of the freedom of Christ. And so um, I think that tends to lean more towards sort of magical thinking um, than really biblical thinking when we think about that type of generational curse. Um, if emotions are the window to the heart, what are your thoughts on the subconscious that is not visible? How do you address and form that aspect of a person? Well, I think by definition, the subconscious is, conscious is inaccessible to us. But I think Jesus says this very interesting thing when he uses the human uh, personality as a, a metaphor with a, a tree. Uh, this, this idea that uh, a good tree will bear good fruit. And it's really sort of um, picturing whatever is on the inside eventually has a way of manifesting on the outside. And so we see expressions of that, and that's how we can access. So one of the things Jesus says is, you know, when the mouth speaks, we suddenly the heart is revealed, right? We, we know what's going on inside you once you start speaking. And so whatever is going on in the, quote, subconscious, I think there is always outward expressions of it in one way or another. Um, you know, we can you know, give you another example is, Men who are, it's usually men who are, uh, uh, may have a secret uh, pornography addiction. And we think that's a private thing that no one else has to know about. But I guarantee you that eventually an addiction like that will have expression in visible physical manifestations of how you look at women, how you make eye contact with them, and things like that. There's just very much difficulty in saying that this is totally kept private and secret in a hidden place in my life. What the Bible seems to suggest is whatever's deep down there, eventually it just has ways of manifesting itself in your relationships, in how you connect with people, in the way you talk, and all of these things. And so when these outward things come, it gives us access to what's really going on inside of us at the deepest levels. Um, what advice would you give to Asian Americans who live in between Eastern shame-based culture versus Western guilt-based culture in how we process emotions? Oh, boy, I, I hesitated to bring this one up because they're just, again, this could be a whole sermon of itself. One thing we see clearly in Scripture is that both this guilt, judgment, justification um, paradigm, as well as this shame and the covering of our shame and all that, they're both found in the Bible that uh, talks about the salvation work that God has done for us. Um, undeniably, when we are more oriented toward guilt uh, or shame, it's going to affect and impact us when we think about how we deal with our brokenness and our process or emotions and things like that. Also, though, I think sometimes we can make too much of it to say Western culture is all guilt and Eastern culture is all shame. There's a, a really great book by uh, Jerry Huang. He's an Asian scholar, 
And he wrote this book called Contextualization in the Old Testament where he unpacks some of this. And he makes the argument as an Asian to say that we, we sometimes overblow that distinction and that even in Western culture, there's plenty of shame dynamics. And even within Eastern and Asian culture, there's a lot of guilt dynamics as well. And so I think sometimes we can overplay that distinction a bit. But if you are really curious about that, want to read more about it, it is more of a scholarly book. And so it's not like fun Saturday reading. But if you're really serious about it, uh, take a look at that. Um, where do you draw the line between validating emotions and enabling destructive perspective or, or behavior? Um, that's a really good question. I, I think that this is actually very hard for us to get right. But there is a difference between validating somebody's emotions and approving of them. And I think we confuse the two. We think the second we validate someone's emotions, we've approved of it. And that's not the case. I think the key word here that's operative is empathy. When somebody is going through emotions, they need to feel like they're being heard. They're being seen, that you see my pain. You know what I'm going through. And that is actually a huge part of parenting. And I think a lot of parents get that really wrong, where we think that just by acknowledging that my kid is angry or something like that, I'm going to somehow approve of it. Um, and I, I think actually there's a huge uh, area of learning and, and skills that we can grow in when it comes to this idea of how can I empathize with somebody without necessarily saying I'm approving of what you do. And um, there's a lot being written up about this in parenting fields. In fact, in our church, we do an entire parenting seminar series on this idea of emotions coaching for our children. In fact, I think one of the greatest gifts a parent can give to a child is to teach them how to name their emotions and to process them. In fact, every parent ought to give that to their children. When you don't, they're the ones that end up growing as adults who don't know how to process their own emotions. When I do my counseling of adults, I see a world of difference between a, an adult who, as a child, was parented with emotional intelligence by their parents and ones who are not. Because even as adults, they don't know how to process their emotions and they struggle all in, 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 in a lot of ways. And so there is a book, if you're really curious about that, called Raising an Emotionally Intelligent Child by John Gottman. And I would strongly encourage you, if you're a parent, to read that book because it talks about the difference between being a permissive parent and being an emotions coaching parent where you can actually validate what a kid is going through and empathize with them and connect with them in that way and not be a permissive parent where all you're saying is, well, you know, be angry, Johnny, and go break everything in the house because we love you or something. That is not good parenting, okay? Good parents need to set boundaries and things like that. But there is this whole world of not just parenting, but in all our friendships and everything, learning how to validate somebody's emotions without necessarily saying that that's, you know, good or legitimate or healthy or any of those things. The key idea is I'm simply empathizing with that person. As a feeler, I find myself often given to my emotions. I recognize that I can't simply stop feeling sad or depressed, but adulting has to continue, and I'm horrible at continuing on with the things I know I should be doing as a responsible adult while lamenting. I feel like I should be more of an overcomer, but find myself more likely to be overcome with my emotions. How can I change this? Um, that's, a, that's a heavy one. It's a great question. Um, I would just lean on some of the stuff that I've already shared. 
Um, I, I think there's no one single simple answer to this. I think it is about seeking community and the help of others. I think so many times we make things so mystical in the Christian faith about like, oh, I want to feel the love of God. And that means swept up in a moment of worship or in a retreat like this, I just want to feel a tingle in my stomach and then I will know God is with me, you know? And we, we kind of seek religious experience like that. But when I look at the pages of scripture, so much of the tangible expressions of God's presence and love, God himself intended that to be experienced by the people of God through one another. And that becomes such a, and that's what I'm going to be talking about in these last two messages, is the community aspect of it is huge. None of us is strong enough to make it on our own when we feel depressed and discouraged. That's where we need brothers and sisters in Christ to lean on to say, keep going, hang in there. And I have relationships like that in my life right now, where through text chains and through phone calls and meetings one-on-one, it's like we are being a lifeline to certain people that are really struggling right now in our church community. And that should be a very vital part of what it means to continue hanging on when we feel so weak and overcome. Um, The other thing that I shared already was just this idea of meditating on the truths of God, just dwelling on even a single verse and working that into the depths of our soul so that it begins to change our outlook on life, to give us hope, to give us genuine belief that begins to change our emotions, okay? Uh, I'll give you just one example that we'll, we'll get on to the message today was like this. When I worked as a doctor, um, I, I was in my residency training before they put limits on how many hours a resident could work. And so, so I remember working insane hours and it got so bad that every time my pager went off, I had this like Pavlovian reaction where I, my heart rate would shoot up because I, I just got so um, bothered by being constantly pinged by that beeper. And what's interesting is then I transitioned from being a medical doctor to being a pastor. And you are on call 24-7 as a pastor, and people would call me. And I think what had happened was in my years of being a doctor, um, the worst was that I got called from labor and delivery because then you know you're there for hours waiting for this baby to come out. And it just ruined your entire weekend and everything. No matter what plans you had, it was ruined. And so now when a church member calls, I would have the exact same reaction. I would just clench up and I'd get really upset. And I'm like, who's calling me? You know? and, and then I would see, and then it's like, oh, somebody's in the hospital. And that means I've got to drop everything and go to the hospital and do a hospital visit. Or somebody's in trouble and they need some help. Or I've got to talk someone off the ledge. And this, this just is happening all the time in pastoral ministry. And I realized as a pastor, I cannot go on. Like this was an an uncontrollable emotional response I had when my church members needed me. And I said, I am a very bad shepherd, you know, because I want to, I hate these people for like ruining my weekend or ruining my whatever. And the worst was on Saturday when I was doing sermon prep and someone gets hospitalized. I go, don't get hospitalized on a Saturday. That is not good for me because you ruin my sermon when you do this. Um, So like for months, I just began to pray to God, that prayer to say, God, change my heart. Change my attitude about this. Help me to see my members with the compassion that you have for them, that they are in desperate need. They're in a situation where they really need help. And I just prayed that prayer, asking for the eyes of Jesus for my own congregants 
uh, for months. And as I began to pray that prayer and meditate on the thoughts of how God sees them in his love for them, like when Jesus was being bothered by them, when he wanted to take his disciples on a private retreat, and then they found him and followed him, and then it's then they were waiting for him when they got to the shore. And it says that Jesus what? He didn't say, get out of here, you jerks. <laughs> he said, it said he had compassion on them because he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And I said, God, give me eyes like that. And what was really amazing to me was God answered that prayer. And it wasn't overnight. It didn't happen instantly. But over time, I think God really began to melt my heart so that when I get that call and it's off hours and I'm trying to spend time with my family, but somebody really needs me in that moment, uh, I could drop what I'm doing and tend to them and minister to them because it really changed my heart, this fundamental sense of compassion for them. And I think that's something that we have to believe is possible in our hearts. Whatever emotions control you and override you, feel so instinctive. Is it possible for me to enter into a life of prayer and meditation on God's truths so much so that I can actually feel different emotions when I'm faced with similar circumstances that normally trigger me into emotions of anger or frustration or resentment or things like that, okay? And again, I think a book, if you want to read more about this type of transformation, a good one would be Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Scazzaro. I think that's a great book to pick up. If you want to look at what it means to be intentionally discipling ourselves through the landscape of our emotions and exploring that, okay? All right, great. Well, let's get into the message tonight, the topic of which is choosing community. And I want to begin with another uh, video clip, and it comes from a movie that I suspect almost none of you have seen. It's called About Schmidt with Jack Nicholson. Has anyone seen this movie in this room? Okay, one person, two people? Awesome, okay. Chances are you guys are movie buffs then because it wasn't a popular movie. Um, About Schmidt tells the story of Warren Schmidt, who is an actuary who has just retired after working his entire life for the Woodman Insurance Company. And several days into his his, uh, retirement, he decides to sponsor a six-year-old child from uh, Africa, actually specifically Tanzania, uh, by the name of of Ndugu. And throughout the movie, Schmidt will write a series of totally inappropriate letters to this six-year-old boy in Africa about what's going on in his life. And the clip that I want to show you captures Schmidt's first letter that he writes to Ndugu. And it's a long clip, so I I had to sort of splice and take it. So it feels a little disjointed. It's because I edited it to try to um, take the relevant parts of the scene that I wanted. But let's go ahead and watch the video clip, and then we'll go on. I really encourage you guys to check out this movie if you can. But having entered into the final season of his life, Warren Schmidt is forced to take a really hard look at himself and the things that he had lived for, Um, the company that he had dedicated his entire life to serving, moves on without him the very next day after he retires. And as he is leaving with his things, he finds the files that he has meticulously, meticulously kept for decades thrown into the dumpster as soon as he retires. But more importantly, Schmidt discovers the hard truth about the relationships in his life and all of the deficiencies that he needs to come to terms with as a husband and as a father. His inability to appreciate almost anything about a wife 
who has dedicated her life to serving him. And his anger and emotional aloofness that has estranged him from the daughter that he loves. A daughter that he dotes on but barely knows or understands. And in his final letter to Ndugu in the movie, he writes these sad words. I know we're all pretty small in the big scheme of things. And I suppose the most you can hope for is to make some kind of difference. But what kind of difference have I made? What in the world is better because of me? I am weak and I am a failure. There's just no getting around it. Relatively soon, I will die. Once I am dead and everyone who knew me dies too, it will be as though I never even existed. What difference has my life made to anyone? None that I can think of. None at all. Hope things are fine with you. <laughs> Yours truly, Warren Schmidt. He sends this to a six-year-old boy in Tanzania. <laughs> you see, in this journey that Schmidt goes on, he is being pressed to gain wisdom about his life, but it is not a lesson that he receives very willingly. He, like all of us, enters into that lesson stubbornly. And I wonder for each one of you, you know, this is pretty wide range of age groups here, but when you enter into that twilight of your life and you look back at the life you've lived, what is that experience going to be like for you? Are you going to enter into that retirement with gratitude and a smile? Or is there going to be a rude awakening and heartbreak that awaits you as you think about how did I live my life? What did I invest in? What was the point of it all? When we look at the passage that I want to look at tonight in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes paints a picture of a person who pours his entire life into his work. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4 says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. What he is saying is that the motivation behind all of the frantic work is envy of others. In this person's perspective, life is a competition, and everyone around him is somebody who must be beaten. The preacher goes on in verses 7 to 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Building on what he has just said earlier, he paints a fuller picture of a person who is so consumed with a desire for wealth that he has basically isolated himself from any meaningful community in his life. He is alone. He is an island. He has no one that he is living for other than himself. And it is in contrast to a picture of a life like that that he says these words in verses 9 to 12 of chapter 4. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will stand, withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. This passage is read at weddings all the time. 
But the preacher is actually not talking about marriage specifically, is he? He's talking more generally about community, which includes all of the relationships that we experience in life, our spouses, our children, our friends, our fellow church members. And it's important to remember the context in which he is saying these words. He is saying that we live in a brutal world filled with suffering and challenges. It's the brokenness theme that we've been talking about this whole time. And he's saying in light of the brokenness of our world, what God has given to us is the gift of community, to lean on each other and to find help with one another. When in essence he is saying is simply this, we need community because life is hard and we need the support of others. He says if one falls, there is somebody there to pick that person up. If you are cold, a friend can keep you warm. You can team together to fight a common struggle and overcome that adversary if you have others in the fight with you. In other words, none of us are strong enough to make it on our own. As much as you may try to deny it, you need the help of others in your life. Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 1 says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. The people in Ecclesiastes 4 that he's referencing are in such a bad situation, not only because they're being oppressed, but he says because they have no community around them, that they are forced to suffer alone. There is no comfort in their suffering because there is no community to help them through it. If you take a step back, the picture that he is painting is one of two fundamentally different paths to choose in life. One is a path of loneliness and isolation. It is a path of greed and jealousy, of taking rather than giving and using others instead of serving them. It's a path of putting relationships as secondary to the goals in your life. And then the other is a path of community. It is the path of experiencing the genuine support of others, of choosing relationships over personal goals of valuing and pursuing others as of first importance in your life. And the preacher is saying, these are the paths that are going to fundamentally shape your life. And you've got to make the choice. Which one are you going to prioritize? Your personal goals and achievements or the relationships in your life? Edward Hollowell points out that we have two primary drives in our life, and that is achieving and connecting. Achieving has to do with accomplishing, pursuing excellence, reaching goals, overcoming challenges. Connecting has to do with our relationships, falling in love, forming lasting friendships, bonding with our children. And almost everything that you will try to do in your life will fall into one of these two categories, achieving or connecting. And the truth is, in an ideal world, we ought to be able to do both, shouldn't we? that the goals that we set for ourselves in achievement ought to go hand in hand with a community world that we want to do. But we also can say that in a fallen world, achieving and connecting often work against each other. And the truth is, for all too many of us, we put achieving ahead of connecting. Our relationships are secondary to the goals that we set in our life. John Orbrick writes, The 20th century was littered with people who achieved great things but never connected. People who accumulated vast amounts of wealth, fame, or power 
but never acquired an open heart. People who had a Rolodex of contacts, but not a single friend. Every one of them died with bitter regrets. Every one. Conversely, I have never known anyone who succeeded at relationships, who cultivated great friendships, who was devoted to their family, who mastered the art of giving and receiving love, yet had a bad life. No matter how little money we have, no matter what rung we occupy on anybody's corporate ladder of success, in the end, what everybody discovers is that what matters is other people. Human beings who give themselves to relational greatness, who have friends they laugh with, cry with, learn with, fight with, dance with, live and love and grow old and die with. These are the human beings who lead magnificent lives. What, when they die, not one of them regrets having devoted themselves to people. Their friends, their neighbors, their children, their family, not one. I think all of us recognize the truth and the wisdom of this statement, and yet why is it? that so few of us actually follow it. The truth is, so often we are willing to sacrifice friendships and community for the sake of that achievement and the goals in our life. And I want to ask you this question tonight. When is the last time you've actually made a friend? I'm not talking about a casual acquaintance here, like, oh, I got to know my neighbor this summer, or, yeah, that coworker. You know, we had lunch together a couple times. I'm talking about somebody that you can actually pour your heart out to. Somebody that you would consider a confidant. Somebody that is there for you through the tough times of life. Who you could share your secrets with. When is the last time in your life that you actually made a friend like that? Talking to the adults in this room, I suspect that for some of you it's been decades since you've made a friend like that. This reveals how hard friendships are to come by. This woman, Marla Paul, was an accomplished professional, a successful columnist for major newspapers, published nationally. But then, to everyone's surprise, she wrote an article one day in the Chicago Tribune in which she confessed to the embarrassment of being incredibly lonely in her life. She moved to a different state, And now, working from home as a columnist, she found that she had almost nobody in her life that she would actually call a close friend. And she wrote in this Tribune article, the loneliness saddens me. How did it happen that I could be 42 years old and not have enough friends? It seems as if every woman's friendship quota has been filled and she is no longer accepting new applicants. And in the column, she wrestles with this nagging feeling that there is some flaw in her, something broken in her that makes her unlikable or something that makes her incapable of forming these kind of satisfying friendships. And at the end of her column, she would write these words. I think there are women out there who don't know how lonely they are. It's easy enough to fill up the day with work and family. But no matter how much I enjoy my job and love my husband and child, they are not enough. I recently read my daughter Hans Christian Andersen's The Ugly Duckling. I felt an immediate kinship with this bird who flies from place to place looking for the creatures with whom he belongs. He eventually finds them. I hope I do too. 
Within days of this article being published, the Chicago Tribune was inundated with phone calls and letters from readers confessing their own struggle with loneliness. She tapped into something so identifiable by so many of us. Lee Strobel, in his book, God's Outrageous Claims, would write this. Okay, I'll admit it. There have been times in my life when I've been profoundly lonely. Despite a flourishing career, lots of good acquaintances, and a fulfilling marriage, I've slogged through eras when I've ached for a friend to whom I could bear my soul. I can personally attest to the biblical truth that human beings were not designed to live relationally disconnected lives. As outrageous as it may sound, we will never feel whole until we experience community, first with God and then with other people. Without that, we will inevitably sense something deeply awry in the depths of our soul. And I just want to ask you this honestly tonight. Do you struggle with loneliness? Because I think the truth is none of us wants to admit that. Loneliness is the struggle of losers, right? To say, I feel lonely, like, can someone be my friend? Like, you got to be at a pretty low point to be able to acknowledge that in your life. I see that so much, even in my own church. I see so many lonely people, and everyone complains about it when I meet with them one-on-one of the loneliness they feel. I'm like, why can't you all just get together, you know? And then no one will have to be lonely. Why is everyone lonely together in this church? What is wrong here? Um, What's particularly interesting about what both uh, Marla Paul and Lee Strobel share is that they are in satisfying marriages with children that they love. But what they have recognized in the later seasons of adulthood is that that is not enough. That is not enough. And I think what the dynamic is for so often, so many of us, is we get married as young adults, and we start raising a family, and the truth is life is consumed by play dates and feeding times and baths and bedtime routines. And what you discover during that decade of your life is that there's just no room for friendships. And then you wake up one day in your 40s and you say, I have no friends. You are my only friend. (laughs) (laughs) this is it this is you and i this is we're on an island and now you try to make friends and you don't know who to approach right this is the journey for so many people it's family 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 work 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 and then suddenly as you get freed up and you have more time on your hands and your kids are more independent you suddenly realize all your friendships are gone When sin enters the world, it not only broke our relationship with God, but what the Bible says, it broke our relationship with one another. And right after Adam and Eve sin, we see that dynamic. Adam will throw Eve under the bus. And instead of protecting his wife, he blames her. And then within one generation, the first murder is recorded in the Bible when Cain kills Abel out of jealousy. And every generation that has followed has seen this breakdown of community because of sin. But what the Bible tells us is that when Jesus died on the cross, he not only healed our broken relationship with God, 
but he also healed our relationships with one another. And what it also says is that through the church, we have the opportunity to discover a redeemed community of what healed relationships ought to look like. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 through 11 says, His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he talks about these walls of hostility that once existed among us being broken by the cross, enabling us to actually experience love as God intended us to. Jeffrey Myers writes, we are incorporated into a society when we are saved, into a new humanity, which is the body of Christ, the church. There is really no such thing as isolated, saved individuals. God didn't just rescue individuals to be saved and go to heaven. The picture is that in saving us, his intention was to create a community out of us where we can experience his love in the most deepest and meaningful ways. And I think for many of us, you can hear everything that I'm saying and say, yeah, yeah, okay, great. But that's not been my experience of the church. The truth is I have experienced as much pain as anywhere else in my attempts to find community in church. And that may be true, but there is a fight that we have to be willing to fight despite all of the flaws that we see in the church. Diedrich Bonhoeffer has one of the, my favorite quotes of all time that he says about the church in his book, Life Together, when he says this. Every human dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. Do you hear what he's saying? I hear so many critics of the church that are railing at the church about how the church should be this and should be that and quoting Bible verses to support it. And it's great to have that idealism, but when you use that idealism as a weapon against the churches that actually exist, then you have become an enemy of God. Because God is saying that church does not exist. All that exists is the church as it actually exists, the church as it really is. And that is the church that God loves, and you are invited to love. And so when you become such an idealist that you become this prophet standing at a distance, rebuking everyone and yelling and judging and condemning everyone, what Bonhoeffer is saying, you are not standing on the side of God. You are actually a destroyer of the church that Jesus loves. Because Jesus loves the church, flaws and all, warts and all, because there is no other church to love other than that church. And I wonder what the journey of church has been for you. At the church that I pastor, almost everyone, it seems, that comes through our door and is looking for a new community comes so wounded. And usually they have a story to tell about how they were burned by the last church they attended. And so they're coming to our doors looking for a better church. And I'm just like, oh, no, <laughs> you know. 
We're not a better church. We're just like that other church. I guarantee you it. But that's the realism of the kingdom of God. It's we're all flawed individuals who are hurting one another. And yet somehow in that brokenness, God is inviting us to take a step of faith and nevertheless embrace and love one another because this is the church that God himself loves. I wonder how many of you have been that critic, that prophet, who is always complaining about what the church is not. And Maybe what God wants to say to you tonight is, I have no other church to offer you. These are broken people that I love, that I am in the process of healing and making whole, but they are works in progress, just like you are. And I suspect RCC is no different than my church. And I wonder how many of you, even tonight, sort of have that guardedness because you've been burned a few times. I see that in my church all the time, the OG members, you know? They kind of sit back and they're not as willing to jump all in because they have been hurt in the past. And so they're just kind of gliding on cruise control in the church. They're present, but they're not really there because they just don't want to be hurt again. And they just don't want to try to make new friends because you know what a lot of them say? Every time I've worked hard to make a friend at this church, they've left this church. And they said to me, they're very honest. They said, I'm done. I'm done. Because as soon as I make a commitment to this guy, they're going to leave this church too. So I'm tired of it. And so they just decide, I'm okay. (laughs) I'm okay like this. I'll be there on Sunday, Pastor. You can count on me. But don't ask anything more of me. And I wonder if God wants to challenge that mindset in your heart tonight and say, great, you show up on Sundays and you're here at this retreat, but the truth is you're holding back. And the truth is it's actually been decades since you made a real friend. The truth is the only real meaningful friendships are your legacy friendships from college and these people that you met, it's young adults. And the truth is in your later adult life, you haven't made a significant meaningful friend. And I think to all of that, we need to be challenged to say, what does it mean for RCC to be a genuine community of love under God? I want to say this as I close. Almost every choice you make in your life is leading you either closer to or further away from finding true community. C.S. Lewis has this wonderful thing that he says in The Four Loves. And I want to read it as I close. We think we have chosen our peers. In reality, a few years difference in the dates of our births, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of the ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward for our discrimination and good taste in finding one another out. At this feast, it is he who has spread the board, and it is he who has chosen the guests. 
I love what he says about that. It's just these weird circumstances that you chose Naperville over Glenview or something like that, or some weird job opportunity, or whatever, some weird chance that you were all born in a similar time or something, and somehow here you are at RCC together. And what C.S. Lewis is trying to say is this is not an accident. This is not even your engineering. But whatever you are seeking in community, this is not by chance that you guys are in the same room together this weekend. I had to come to grips with that in my own life where I would say the, I could boast about the fact that I have this group of friends that we've been running together with since college. And every year we get together in a different city around the country or even outside the country. And we meet for a week and we pray together, we cry together, we, we confront each other when we have issues we need to say to each other. We love each other unbelievably deeply. But one of the things that I had to be honest with is that cannot be the extent of my friendships because most of them live out of state. And what I realized that I can easily go, oh, yeah, I have real friendships. Yeah, they're all from college. But am I even, as a pastor of my own church, making friends within my church? And there is a sense in which it feels very hard to do that because everyone sees me as pastor. But I have been fighting to overcome that dynamic to say, listen, I know I'm your pastor, but I also want to be your friend. Just two weeks ago, we vacationed with church members like that. where we They're, they're actually not at our church anymore, but they used to be at our church, and we vacationed together like that. And just, just this sense that, the community that we need to build has to be a priority here at RCC. And I suspect that many of you have these legacy friendships, and you say, oh, those are my real friends. But the truth is you haven't deepened any relationships here in this congregation. And I think there is something really broken and wrong with that. And I wonder what that would mean for each of you to take a step of faith and say, in this room, among these people that I worship with every week, I need to find my deeper friendships and the people that I'm going to journey through life with together. Let's pray. As we um, go into tonight's time of prayer and small group, I just want you to reflect on the challenge that you've been given. Um, when is the last time you have made a close friend in your life? And I get it. We're all like this. It's about achieving, isn't it? And the truth is all of us have put a priority on achieving. And at first it was achieving our career goals. But once we achieved our career goals, it was about achieving for our children, hasn't it? It's about just chauffeuring them to one extracurricular activity after another and giving them the best chance to get into the Ivy League schools. And life is all about achieving, making sure that our kids do well by us and making sure that they have the best chance of success at life. And and at some point when you've gone through it all, you may look and say, what have I really lived for? Is this it? And as John Orbrick suggests, those who have instead put the emphasis on connecting and relationships never look back at their life as a life of regret. This is an opportunity for you to make a course correction, I think, and say, you know what? Uh, yeah, the truth is it sometimes just feels like it's my wife and, my, and me my husband and me. I feel like sometimes we're our only two friends, actually, of any meaningful depth. And that's just not right. And maybe some of you might even be honest enough to say, the truth is I do feel lonely sometimes 
when there's a Saturday and I have FOMO and I feel like everyone else is out with friends and stuff and I'm actually sitting by myself with nothing to do on a Saturday night because I haven't cultivated those friendships. Nobody texts me and say, what are you doing tonight? And you can blame others and say, what's, what's wrong with this church? Why is nobody reaching out to me? Why is this church so unfriendly? And you can judge this church for that. But maybe the brokenness lies in your own heart, in the fact that you have not been a friend like that to other people and cultivated those relationships. And my prayer is that maybe tonight you could just offer that as an expression of faith to God, saying, God, I don't sometimes even feel I know how to take the first steps toward this. The truth is I feel incredibly socially awkward, and I I always fumble with my words, and I don't know the right things to say. And it's so easy for me to stay in the comfort of this little bubble I've created for myself. But God, I want to lay that before you and take some risks. And I am willing to try and make some deeper friendships in this church and build a real sense of community here at RCC. And rather than blaming others for not being friendly toward me, I want to be that friend for somebody here in this room. Let me just close this in in a word of prayer. I'm going to hand things over to the elders who will lead us into this breakout time and a time of more extended prayer. But let me pray for us. God, my uh, heart really goes out uh, just from a pastoral heart of seeing how much loneliness exists in your church. What a sad commentary that is that in this weird way, we're all lonely together. We all are having this longing for deeper friendships. And yet, somehow, despite those moments of emptiness we feel, we don't seem to be able to leverage that into real meaningful relationships. God, maybe it's because we just feel like there's just too much risk involved. Maybe we are fatigued by broken relationships and we just don't want to try anymore. Maybe we bear scars of broken relationships in the past. Whatever our reasons may be, I pray that out of our hope that you are the one who can make this happen. And it is your desire to see each one of us enter into those loving relationships that we would take that step of faith to make that commitment to one another tonight and to choose community over achievement and relationships over all of the personal goals that seem to matter so much to us as we pray all of this in Christ's name.